Olá pessoal, tudo bem and welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs and influencers from across the Brazil crypto ecosystem. I'm your host Aaron Stanley and today I'm joined by Maxime Pisson who is the CTO of Credix, which is a decentralized credit marketplace that is working to give borrowers in Brazil and other countries access to previously untapped capital. I would like to welcome Maxime to the show. Great. Thanks uh, for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, so to get started, why don't you just tell us a bit about your background and how you got into crypto? Definitely. Um, so my background has been a bit more technical. So I studied physics after that, did an extra degree in artificial intelligence, uh, and then actually joined a company called Intellect. Uh, where Thomas, now our CEO, and Shaim, uh, our chief growth officer, were working already. Um, and what we mainly did there was building permissioned DLT applications for big banks and stock exchanges all over the globe, and really scaled that team from a few people to 100 people, uh, big with clients like on the Stock Exchange, Australian Stock Exchange, and JP Morgan. And that's really where the interest got triggered. Yet it was kind of in a different space, right? It was in the permission DLT space. So just to some notes between banks and we gradually started looking at public chains as well. And then eventually rolled into credits, but I think we can uh, talk a bit more about that. So I'm going to ask you to tell us more about credits, but I first wanted to pull out a couple of statements from your white paper and some of your marketing language that I think are really helpful to kind of set the stage for what you guys are trying to do. And the first one was that DeFi investment opportunities will be connected to real world assets, not linked to crypto volatility. And, you know, we're all sort of searching for the elusive, you know, real world use case in crypto here. That's not like, you know, dog coins and food tokens and like weird Ponzi stuff. Right. Um, I was hoping you kind of elaborate on, you know, what do you mean by that, by linking, connecting DeFi investment opportunities with with real world assets? No, definitely. I think that sentence uh, is a mouthful. So if you look at the more early days of crypto or like even a few months ago, you have all those DeFi primitives, like for example, a compound where all the rates are actually driven by um, by demand and offer, right? Uh, so there you now see that the rates are very low because we're kind of in this bear market. What we actually mean with connecting crypto to real world is actually taking a real world use case like credit and credit has been around as long probably as uh, humans exist and bringing that on chain. So we have this, this real world influx of capital repayments, interest rates, etc. But then we use the blockchain actually as an efficiency layer to move value at the speed of the internet on Solana. Um, and also create efficiencies by incorporating all the logic that comes with providing credit for the repayments, for the tranche, waterfalls, et cetera, et cetera. And the other sentence that I found particularly interesting was where you say that fintech companies and non-bank loan originators are focused on credit automation and user experience, but face high costs and long lead times to source capital from private investors. Yeah, I'm sure everybody who's been crypto or fintech long enough has seen these different apps that come out and they're really, they look really nice. Like they're really fancy. They're easy to use. Um, you know, it seems like, it seems like what you're saying here is there's more, been more of an emphasis put on just trying to make these things easy to use, but the back end of actually getting the credit and the funding, that process hasn't really been improved that much. So it doesn't really matter how nice that the app looks if 
the if it's like getting the credit is just as difficult as it was before, I guess. Yeah, so there I think a small difference actually in what we mean. Um, so what we mean is that those fintech companies and they're really good at at finding. Let's take an example. We have one fintech we work with, the Credit. They do secondhand car financing, so they're very good at setting everything up, at finding the borrowers, so individuals who want to have a car, at actually picking the best individuals, so that they are actually sure that they will pay back. So that is all in place. They have great apps, et cetera. User experience is great. Then the second part of the sentence, it says non-bank loan originators. So those fintechs are non-bank loan originators, which means that they're not a bank. So they cannot just lend capital from their balance sheet. So what they actually have to do is every time they give out a loan locally in the market, that loan is actually sold in the capital market. It's not sold piece by piece, but what you actually do is pull them together. You create a financial securitized product out of that and you sell that in capital markets. There you have a lot of existing structures in order to do that in a legal way, but setting up those structures, finding the investors to invest in that structure, that actually is very bureaucratic, takes a long time, and you also have to raise a lot of money all at once. Mm. Now, what we actually provide is that we can do it way more efficient. So we still set up these structures off chain. Uh, we still um, do everything in a fully compliant way. But with us, it's way quicker to set everything up. And we're also more flexible. So instead of raising 100 million REI all at once, you can do it 10 times 10 million REI, maybe at some different terms, which is also good because... Maybe if you have 100 million AI, you cannot originate all of that at once locally in the market. So there we really felt the needs of those credit fintechs for a solution like us. Thank you for setting the stage just with, I think we were kind of touching on some of the, you know, the problem that you're trying to solve here a bit. And with that, I'd like you to, to just tell us a bit more about credits itself. Like what's the product, you know, the problem you're solving, which we just kind of delved into, uh, the team that's working on this. And I know you just rolled out Credix V2, but maybe maybe let's try to wrap head around Credix V1, and then we'll we'll dive into V2 a little bit later. But we'd love to hear a bit more about what you guys have been working on. No, definitely. So maybe it's good to take a step back at, at that moment in time where Thomas, Shame and myself were working in that company. Then Thomas actually saw a big opportunity uh, of doing interest arbitrage because like the rates charged to those fintechs. So it's mainly banks and they give them maybe money to the fintechs or other investors. They were very high, but it doesn't really mean that the risk is super high of the credit, right? So there you have high rates. Then actually in Western countries, the rates you get on, on bonds or on deposits are very low. Now with blockchain technology, we can actually do this arbitrage in an automated way. And arbitrage, it's maybe bit of a weird word, but just meaning that we can now provide high yielding opportunities from Brazil and other emerging markets to investors in the US and in Europe, etc. So that was the initial thought. Then we started building, not just building products, but also building legal, building business relationships. And then back in November last year, we decided, okay, let's go full time for this. We raised a 2.5 million uh, seed round. We started hiring the first tec uh, technical people as well to support me. And then we launched our first version back in January last year. Now, if I have to describe that first version, what it actually was able to do is that on one side, you had investors. Those are all institutional investors 
We also have KYC, KYB on them. Uh, we whitelist them on the blockchain such that only they can actually supply capital. So that was the investor side. And then on the borrower side, we had three, four fintechs lined up. We had the full legal structure ready so that they could actually get credit facilities to the platform. Now, how the blockchain actually came in is that those investors, they deposit USDC in the critics marketplace in a liquidity pool. They get LP tokens in exchange for that to keep track of their position. Then if we have a borrower, they would, let's say, need a uh, 1 million credit facility. We could bring it live in the pool. It would take the USDC from the pool, send it to the borrower's wallet. They would actually off-ramp it to Brazil, uh, Brazilian REI, and then they would start repaying. In its first version, all the credit facilities were structured as bullet loans. So that means that for every month, you just repay interest. So let's say you have a loan of a million, 15%, uh, or let's say 12% uh, in financing fee. That means you pay 10,000 per month in interest. And at the end of maturity, after a year, they repay the full principal. So that was really the first version that allowed us to scale to, uh, to where we are today, which is 17.5 million in credit outstanding. Along the way, we actually learned way more about the needs of both sides of the market, where we saw that the investors are actually all kind of different. Some have a way higher risk appetite than others. Uh, some for this higher risk appetite, they also want a higher yield. Some want more protection. So that actually paved its way to tranching. So tranching is actually a concept that exists, again, for a long time in traditional finance, where you say, okay, we have now this credit facility of a million, let's say it's 15% of financing fee. We're actually going to split that up in, let's say, two tranches, a senior tranche and a junior tranche. We say that senior tranche can expect a yield of 10%, and the junior tranche can expect a yield of 25%. They could think, okay, but how can that work? Because it's only 15% at the, the annualized interest rate that the borrower has to repay. So how can this junior tranche get 25%? It is actually because this senior tranche only gets 10.5%, right? So it uses senior tranche as leverage. Now, why would the senior tranche ever be happy with that? It's because of the protection. Let's say now the borrower fails to do a repayment. So it's a kind of default. Then the capital of the junior tranche will flow to the senior tranche so that they at all times are protected by this junior tranche. So that was one aspect that we saw, okay, this is something we really need to have. And then we started thinking, how can we not just have two tranches, but maybe three or four or five or six? So now we have like an architecture which allows for up to actually as many tranches as you want. We'll probably only use three or four tranches for the next year. But if we really move to very big credit deals, it's very interesting to have this whole tranching structure with different kind of waterfalls. And it's when money moves from one tranche to another. Then I just mentioned the bullet loans. So that was V1. Then again, we saw uh, for some fintechs, it's actually way more interesting to do amortization, which means that you already start repaying your principal along the way. For some, it's still interesting to the bullet. For example, we have some agriculture deals in the pipeline. There, they need financing to buy seeds, for example. Then they do the whole growing season and the harvest. So there, a bullet loan makes a lot of sense because it matches their cash flows. Then some other fintechs, they do, for example, SME financing, and they get repaid like constantly. So their amortization makes way more sense. 
Then again, we thought, okay, bullet amortization, how can we just allow for any kind of uh, repayment schedule? So also there, we took that approach, took a bit longer, but now we can allow for yeah, any kind of schedule you can uh, think of. So that's the main innovations of the V2. So for the for the borrowers, then the the idea is that they can almost like customize their own repayment schedule that is most in line with their particular business model. Because uh, obviously, if you're a if you're a SME lender or that's financing small businesses, or if you're lending to farmers, or if you're lending if you're doing car loans or something, obviously all those those products have different uh, you know different uh, they have different you know sort of factors into them, right? That would you know, so maybe a one size fits all approach is not necessarily the best fit for those things. But like, like what would be an example of of a borrower that would that would like benefit greatly from a new type of from like a customized repayment schedule like this that wouldn't otherwise be available? So there, just in general, even how it happens is that hey, we create a deal and then the borrower they receive the funds all at once. Of course, they have to issue new loans that we then acquire off chain, and that's a collateral sitting off chain. But they cannot disperse the full principal, let's say 1 million in a day, right? So they need like some time to start dispersing the capital. So there we, for example, we're going to do a deal uh, next Monday, which has this structure. We're saying out of first six months, you only pay interest. So you don't have to pay principal. Then from that moment on, they have actually issued a lot of loans that already start making repayments. So the end borrowers. So capital comes in. And then we say, okay, from now on, your schedule is going to be an amortization. So you can start repaying principal. And that actually, that, that first grace period, how they call it, is different for different kinds of borrowers. So let's say you can originate very quickly. Maybe you don't need that grace period. Let's say it takes a lot of time if you, if you do uh, some, some very big credit deals uh, with some SMEs, for example. It might take some time to do the structuring yourself for the end borrower. So that's where you do need the grace period. Then again, if we have, for example, an agriculture deal, it could even be that we say, ah, oh, you don't pay anything, no interest and no principal until the final period of that repayment schedule. And then you repay everything. So there you see the intricacies of the different uh, borrowers. And, and, and so just to kind of highlight what the, the value proposition of all this um like how does this differentiate from the types of products that are currently available to some of these end borrowers um, in like just the traditional sort of SME financing space in these, in these countries? Like, why is this improvement over what already exists? Several things. Um, so what we actually now did is, is in the whole securitization flow that it already exists in the real world, right? Uh, we actually took the financing part out of there. So we tokenize a securitized asset and we do the financing on chain, but also the repayments. So if you look at how it happens today is that there is this uh, intermediary and what they actually do is keeping track of the escrow bank account where all the end borrowers repayments come in. They then calculate how much should go to each one of those tranches that I explained. They have to do reconciliation, reporting, because we have all the information on the blockchain, that is the truth. So we don't have to do all those manual steps. So that's already a big win. What's another interesting part is that flexibility that I uh, touched upon at the beginning. So we can do like, instead of 100 million AI, we can split up in some smaller deals such that they also have time to disperse the capital and don't have to pay interest yet. The another thing is, um, 
that we also provide an ecosystem of investors. So for them, it's very difficult today to find investors locally in the markets in Brazil. Um, and we now open up a window to the rest of the world where we actually have an ecosystem of credit funds, hedge funds, crypto funds, uh, and family offices. So that again, speeds up the process. Got it. Got it. Let's kind of just walk through like the various sort of user journeys, if you will, because there, there's multiple stakeholders involved here um, in the product. And it's, it's a, I guess, for, for a non-financier like myself, this is like, it's a little bit like kind of hard to wrap your head around. Um, so I was hoping you could maybe walk us through some of the different journeys. So starting, say, say I'm an investor, you know, what are my options? Um, you know, I can either, from what I understand, I can either put that, those, I can either put those funds into uh, a liquidity pool, which is basically like the higher tranche. And that will end, eventually give me access to all of the different uh, deals that are available in that particular market. Or I can do more of an, uh, an, a bespoke individual loan for a specific deal that is a bit higher risk, but higher return. Uh, but maybe kind of walk us through that process of as, as the end investor, say I'm, I'm a family office and I want to invest in this. Like, how does that process look like from my end? Just as you said, you have the per market because we can set up different markets. Today, we have one market where we have all the fintech deals in Brazil. In that market, you have a liquidity pool. And once you have gone through KYB, KYC, accreditation, you can actually deposit in that pool. It's basically like depositing in a fund which has exposure to different stocks. If you deposit in a liquidity pool, you automatically have exposure to all the senior tranches of all the deals in that market. So if a new deal goes live, how it actually works is that first, the more junior tranches get filled up by the underwriters. I'll get to that in a second. And then the senior tranche is filled by the pool. So you just come in, you say, okay, I invest a million in the pool. You get X amount of LP tokens. Then that gives you exposure to all deals. If interest repayments come in with the automatic waterfall, it will also get to the pool. This LP token rises in value, which is based on the net asset value of the pool. So that means how much is outstanding, how much is in the pool and how many tokens actually exist. So that token goes up in price. And at a later stage, you can just say, okay, I want to withdraw my LP tokens and you get your initial principal and yield back. So that's the pool, um, which is more tailored towards let's say investment firms that are not per se credit specialists, but that do want to have exposure to this type of asset. They know if I invest in it, I'm protected by several layers by the junior tranches, but also by over collateralization off chain. So they, it's a pretty safe harbor where they can get interesting yields. Then we have the underwriters. So underwriters, it's like a very small club of underwriters uh, that we today have pretty exclusive. And they actually get early access to the deals. They also get way more information. So after we have done due diligence on them, we allow them to this club, they can actually do due diligence on the new deals. So they will get access to a data room where we have like the loan tape of the FinTech, where we have more information on the management team, historical performance. They can have direct communication line with this FinTech. Uh, and once they say, okay, I feel comfortable, they can actually underwrite this deal by providing capital to the junior tranche. In return, again, they get like those tranche tokens, how we call them to keep track of their investment. 
So that's really the two groups of uh, investors that we today serve. So it's not dissimilar, at least with the liquidity, the, the higher tranche part portion, it's not dissimilar to becoming like a liquidity provider in Uniswap or something, right? I put in, I put in my funds, or I get my LP token that uh, the value is determined by like the nav of the pool essentially. And then I'm free to withdraw that or redeem that whenever I, whenever I choose essentially. I, I guess the question would be like, so if I, if I'm an investor, I, I take, I have these, these LP tokens, what can I actually do with those tokens? Do I need to just hold on to them till for the duration of the loan? Can I redeem them whenever I want? Can I, can I trade those on a secondary market? Uh, like what can I do with those tokens? Oh, that's, that's an excellent question. And maybe already a look into the, the roadmap. Um, so today you have those tokens, they're actually frozen in your wallet, so to say, because we are permissions. We don't allow you to send them to anyone else. Uh, and then you can redeem them if there is liquidity available. Now, we are in talks with different uh, parties to see if you can use those tokens as collateral to borrow against. We are also working on a secondary market where you can actually, if you really want to get rid of your position, you could actually sell them to uh, another investor, which is allowed on our platform. So that's also uh, coming. What would be the premium from a returns perspective on these lower tranche, like the higher risk tranche that your underwriters are, are kind of coming in and examining deal by deal, which one do they want to invest in versus the higher tranche, which is I'm getting a little bit of exposure to all of them. Like what's the premium that that you'd be looking at by moving, moving down tranches like that? So today the... Uh, pool actually has a 30-day APY of around 13.5%. Uh, so that's, again, lowest risk um, because you have all this protection. Then if we look at the other tranches, it depends on the structure, but like more junior tranches go between 16 and 25% in yield. Got it. There, indeed, the default setting is uh, that you're locked. So that your uh, principal interest is actually locked for the the full duration of the deal because it serves as a protection for the senior tranche. But there again, we have in our V2 advanced settings where we can say, okay, for this specific deal in the commercial discussions, we decide that the interest of the junior tranche can already be withdrawn along the deal's life cycle, which of course means then that the senior tranche and thus the pool is not protected by that small interest part anymore. We can do the same for principal uh, or both, or we can disable both, but there again, we have this flexibility. And then just for clarity, like what types of investors are eligible for this? Is this accredited investor or is this anybody can put funds in or what's the process by which you're, you're sourcing these people? They have to be accredited. So there again, we're very stringent. So it's or self-accreditation uh, in non-US jurisdictions, again, with the right terminology or uh, it's like really when the manual check would prove that they are accredited. But today we mainly have like very big institutional investors. So it's mainly funds that do investments uh, on credits. And are these institutional investors more like crypto leaning or are you getting other, I mean, this seems like a nice product that could potentially bridge the gap between, I mean, you have your crypto fund institutions and you have your traditional finance institutions, right? This seems like a good product that could bridge that gap nicely, but what's the uptake there? What type of diversity are you seeing? No, it's a, indeed a great, great question and also what we see happening today. So as we started, it was mostly crypto-native hedge funds that invested uh, to critics. 
But now we have actually onboarded the first uh, threat fight funds. And we are also in talks to onboard some of the bigger credit funds on this globe. Of course, you see that the, the mindset is a bit different, right? So the, the more crypto native funds, they, they care more about the yield and how the blockchain works and the smart contracts. Whereas the more native or the more threat five funds, they actually look at the underlying credits, how that is behaving, and they care a bit less about the crypto part because they really see, look at us as a great new origination pipeline of good credit. But we are indeed onboarding uh, both of them. And in the long term, we really want to bring all those ThreatFi players on chain through critics. So let's talk a bit about the borrower journey. Um, and in this context, when we say borrower, we're not actually talking about the end bar. We're not talking about like the, the person who's financing the car. We're talking about the institution that's providing the financing to the person who's buying the car. But so maybe maybe talk a bit about like that for that that fintech that's offering you know a car financing service in Brazil. Uh, what's that journey look like for that particular fintech? And then and also talk about what the end journey is like for the for the end user, the end borrower. Does, does the end borrower even know that they're interacting with like a decentralized finance protocol? So maybe first your second question. Uh, the answer is no. They they don't have a clue because they they just have like the contractual relationship uh, with. The fintech, they get fiat money, they repay in fiat, and that's it. Then the fintechs themselves, so our borrowers, um, how that actually works is that we get a lot of inbound requests of fintechs that need financing. Uh, there we actually, I think, it's a pretty stringent process that we have in place, uh, our underwriting process. They have to check a lot of uh, different boxes. Uh, then we do a deep due diligence, also an historical data team, etc., and then we actually allow them to start borrowing from the critics platform. There as well, it's not that they create the deals, it's actually the asset manager of the specific market. So for the critics fintech market, it's uh, us. So our own team who does that, uh, we actually create a deal. Then we have the underwriters doing the underwriting, the LPs stepping in for the senior, and then actually they get the capital in USDC on their wallet, the fintechs. Then they have this USDC, they transfer it to an exchange. Today, we work with uh, Transfero Swiss, um, our partner. And there, they actually swap this USDC for uh, BRL. So they off-ramp it into Brazil Real. And they get it on their bank account with a PIX payment. And then they start disbursing uh, new loans locally in the market. Then, of course, if those end borrowers, so the, the individuals or the SMEs start repaying, that actually comes in an escrow account. And then from there, the reverse flow happens. So they put it again on the exchange, exchange for USDC, send the USDC to the smart contract, and then the full automation happens uh, for the division of the interest and principal. Got it, got it. And then, so so essentially you have, there's essentially like kind of four primary stakeholders in this whole process. There's the investor, there is the borrower, which in this case is the, the FinTech, uh, there is the asset manager, which is the person or the entity that's creating the market, uh, which in this case is you guys. Is it in the roadmap to like open this up to other types of other types of entities that w would want to get involved in this? Is there a business model that this would be enticing for for somebody to get involved in? Definitely, definitely. So there as well, if you uh, in the documentation, we also describe it that we have like we can cater for two kinds of markets. So we have the the fund structure 
which is basically like React today. So there we have a pool, different deals going live, and there we are already talking to um, credit funds who will move their funds to a credit market to gain efficiency. Then next to the fund structure, you have the syndicated loan structure, which is actually for some fintechs or other borrowers that are very big. They don't want to borrow at maybe the rates that are charged in the fintech market. So we can spin off a separate market for them and then actually have segregated deals. So we can do a deal of, let's say, 10 million, where we again have a senior tranche, mezzanine and junior, for example, but no pool. So we actually source investors to fill those tranches. They know exactly what their exposure is. They know exactly what the underlying collateral is. They know exactly how long the lockup is and the returns they will get. So we also see big interest there. And actually, for both the fund structure and the syndicate loan structure, we are in talks to uh, set up those markets soon. How is Credix itself making money here? Or what is your business model? Is it on that asset management component? What, what does the governance of this ultimately look like? Is there plans to do like a governance token or something like that? Or how are you going to kind of progressively decentralize this once it once it reaches sufficient scale? So first, the, the business model is that for our market, we take uh, an origination fee. So every deal that goes live, we take a small fee on the outstanding principal every year. And then we also take a performance fee, uh, which is basically on all the interest repayments coming back. The same parameters are configurable for other markets, and then we just take a share of that. So it's really more of an assets under management kind of uh, business model. Second part, uh, will we decentralize? Will there be a token? Uh, we're still thinking that through. So until today, actually, there is big appetite to invest in credits, borrow from credits, all without having to boost everything with tokens. Of course, we see benefits in having a token. So it will definitely come one day. We will use it to provide certain uh, decision power or or that you need to lock your tokens in order to maybe start a market. But we really want to think this utility through before we launch a token. So there we we take it step by step and we'll do it when the moment is right. So let's talk a bit more about, we've been talking a lot about kind of the technicals of, of how this works and how it's structured and, and the business model and things. But let's talk a bit more about just like real world sort of use uptake. And in particularly in Brazil, I mean, I guess, first of all, there are other markets you're operating in. and But then I would love to learn a bit more about in Brazil, what are some kind of real use cases that uh, are being facilitated here through through the use of this platform? So there we have uh, at the Credi, they do second-hand car financing, and it's a pretty nice model. So they actually work together with uh, garages, or how do you call it, where you repair your car? Oh, like uh, like repair shops. Yeah, exactly, exactly that, exactly that. And they actually, it's a it's a genius model because they also have the car as collateral. Then a secondhand car actually doesn't lose as much value because if you would do financing of new cars, the moment you drive out of the uh, out of the shop, it actually loses a lot of its value. You don't have that with secondhand cars. So there, we already have like a few thousand people driving around in cars because of financing the credit got through uh, critics. Then we have uh, Provi, they do student loans. Uh, so it's all, it's not for a university degree per se, but it's more for shorter term um, studies. So there as well, it's then backed by or the university or maybe parents. So we always have this protection uh, in there. 
So already there as well, hundreds of students now studying because of financing through our platform. Then A55, for example, they do uh, revenue-based financing. So they have uh, some AI models that they, for SMEs, can predict what, what the, the future revenue will be. And then this SME can actually uh, borrow against that. So they get X amount of uh, credit, and then they can grow their business, and then they start repaying it. So there is well tens of businesses already doing that through financing through us. Um, then we are negotiating those uh, agriculture deals. So hopefully in a, in a few weeks or months time, we have like millions of soybeans and uh, sugarcane growing in Brazil uh, through the financing. So there you really see that we have like a lot of different groups of, of fintechs and, and companies yet for now all in Brazil, because we know Brazil very well. We know the legal landscape. Uh, we know how securitization works in Brazil. And that's also why we, we started there. And then gradually we will expand to Colombia, Mexico, the rest of Latin America, and then to other uh, continents as well. So yeah, the next question is, I mean, it seems like you guys have only been around for about a year, like officially, right? Or even less than a year. It seems like you've made quite a bit of progress already. So how do you see this progressing over the next like, you know, 12 months or so? And then another question also, and, and sorry to piggyback questions or uh, on top of each other, but with these types of business models where you're, you're, you're basically trying to create a marketplace that brings together one, you know, the, the, in this case, the investor and then the borrower, there's always this like chicken and egg problem, right? Where it's like, you have too many investors, but you have no borrowers, then there's no interest. You have all borrowers, no investors, there's no interest. So how did you guys go about solving that chicken and egg problem? Um, and maybe maybe answer that first and then go into the kind of the the roadmap question. Yeah, there as well, because like we have very close relationships with both the borrowers, the fintechs, as well as the investors. Like that's maybe against DeFi where everyone is just a public key and you don't know anything. We really have those old school relationships so we can really plan capital calls and disbursements of credit pretty nicely. So that was something we did from the start and we'll still do moving forward. So if we have a new deal that needs to be underwritten, we have a structured process in which we work together with the underwriters. In the meantime, we make sure that there will be enough capital in the liquidity pool for when a deal goes live. So that's already pretty well structured. Um, then over time where we really see the growth is that we want to become that baseline infrastructure for credits uh, globally so that we have now this uh, this fintech market that we're still going to grow a lot as well but it's like an example of what you can do with the technology the the idea is that in a few months or years time that those new markets will actually start popping up with their own asset managers and that you really become this infrastructure layer. And there as well, it's not just a technology, but we can also provide you with the, the legal infrastructure. We can provide you with the ecosystem of investors. Um, so that's really the the end game. And you mentioned earlier that you were you built you built this on Solana, and I just wanted to get your take on why you chose Solana, why Solana is the best fit for this, and also Solana has been having some performance issues of late. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. Is that something you're concerned about at all? Or is that just, you know, growing pains that will be figured out here eventually? Yeah, so definitely the the last thing you said, I think it is definitely growing pains. I mean, in the past few months, they didn't have 
any hiccups with uh, with the network. Of course, uh, you had uh, the wallet uh, thing, um, but it was not their their um, their fault. Um, why Solana to start with? Uh, so of course we did compare a lot of different chains uh, to each other at uh, the Tezos, Ethereum, uh, and Solana amongst others, and there we actually have this way of thinking as well that if you look at how people actually like to interact with things, they like to have it fast and cheap. That's just how most people work. Even if you if you have a protocol like ours where it's big checks and maybe not that much number of transactions, it's still good if an investor clicks on okay, approved transaction for five million, that they get a confirmation in a few milliseconds. And that it's also like a few pennies to um, to approve that transaction. If you look at an Ethereum, for example, there you have to wait minutes before it's approved. There you have to pay very, very high fees. Of course, it is a bit more established. Um, but there again, we, we know the Solana team pretty well. Uh, there is like a lot of innovations that have already been done and a lot of innovations uh, still on the roadmap. So we are still very, very happy with, uh, with the decision. Next to that, purely on a technical side of things, the programming model of Solana is also very beautiful. So where you have in the EVM chains, you actually have your smart contract, which actually has the, the state and logic together. Which means, let's say we want to build a smart contract that uh, keeps track of your age, and every year you want to increment it by one. So in Ethereum, it would be like very simple. Okay, you have a smart contract with a function increment uh, age by one, and then you have a variable in that smart contract which is your age. Then every year you can call it, and it increments that age by one. On Solana, it's different. On Solana, actually everything is an account. Uh, so your smart contract is an account which holds the logic. And then you have a separate account, which will hold your age. Now, if I want to increment your age, I just take that account, send it to the smart contract. It goes through the smart contract. We can do some checks. It spits it out. And now the age on that account has been incremented. Why is that so important? Because every time, for example, we create a new deal, we don't have to deploy a fully new smart contract. We just create a new deal account. And the logic still stays the same. And this actually translates itself in the fact that we can very easily set up multiple markets because we just create a new market account and some other accounts that, that are related to that market, but the logic doesn't really change. So you have like a multi-tenant system, how they call it, out of the box if you design it well. So that was also uh, one of the reasons we uh, went for uh, Solana. So, so you mentioned earlier that you raised 2.5 million in seed funding about, about a year ago, maybe a little bit less than a year ago. Uh, can you tell us any more details about what the, your fundraising roadmap looks like? Yeah, so there, of course, uh, we are constantly in touch with our initial investors, with new ones, and uh, definitely looking at different opportunities uh, for the next round. Maxime, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I'll give you the last word here. Anything else you want to communicate? Anything else you're really excited about, about the Brazil crypto marketplace and what you guys are doing there? Yeah, just excited about the future in general. It's insane how welcoming Brazil was as a whole, both the fintechs, the regulators, the central bank, everyone. So everyone is thinking in, okay, what can we do tomorrow that hasn't been done uh, today? There, we're very, very glad to be a part of that revolution. Well, let me ask you, since 
I should have asked you this earlier, but why was Brazil the the market that you chose to focus on? You mentioned some others that you're thinking about expanding into, but why was Brazil the initial focus that you you opted for? Because it's uh, it's several things. It's the and the lack of capital provisioning from banks, etc. So the lack to access, so to say. Then it's a massive, massive market. And you can, if you get it right and you get the first fintechs on board, the rules are not going to change, right? So you have like a very big, big market. And the underlying credit is also very good if you find it. Uh, so that's all combined together with actually that Shaim, our co founder, he is half Brazilian. So he already had a lot of uh, connections there in the market, lives there, speaks a language that actually pulled the trigger to uh, start there. Great, great. Well, Maxime, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back soon with another great episode. Obrigado, everyone, and thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.